Alright, hello everyone. We have about a minute left. Um, looks like we're we're missing about seven people. So let's wait a, just wait a minute here and see if we can get, get a few more people in before we start it up. Okay. Um, while we're waiting, does anybody have any questions about the project coming up? Um, about anything at all? Okay, very good. Well, that's, that is promising. Uh, but please email me if you do. What we're going to do is uh, work on Wojciech today, um, but we'll put some time in this week just to discuss the project and how, how it's going for people. Uh, but I wanted to jump in on this play. All right, so we have eight people out of 14. Um, we usually get a few more. But it is 12.20, and I, I do want to start. We have a lot to get to today. Um, all right. Kimberly just joined us. Great. So just to start, uh, today we have um, Professor Jean Marsden joining us. Uh, she is my advisor here at UConn. Um, she teaches 17th, 18th century, as well as some uh, 19th century novel as well, novels as well. So um, she's just going to be be observing today. All right, just to, to let everyone know. And though I said so just to, to prep for today or, or to uh, prompt today, um, we were going to start with uh, Beijing Opera, but I think we'll put that off. We'll put that off to, to later this week, uh, just because I do want to get into Voidsec and I want to give you guys more of an, an opportunity to respond to this play. All right, so let's get into it. Um, so this play was discovered. I'll give you a little opening to this, um, and then we'll we will hear your responses. So this play wasn't discovered until 1837, and it didn't perform until 80 years later after its discovery. I think it was Max Reinhardt, the experimental director, who in the early part of the 20th century uh, brought this play to the stage. Around the same time, um, in the mid-19-teens, Wojciech, the Albenberg opera based upon this, was also staged. Uh, did anybody get to listen to any of the opera? I know I recommended it last week. Has anybody heard it? No, I didn't get to. Didn't get to? All right. It, it is... Not yet, but I'm planning on it. Okay. Well, let's listen to a little bit of it, just to give, give a sense of how people responded, how other artists responded to this work. And this is Wojciech confronting Marie after he's found out she's cheating on him. Right. 
Okay, lower that. Pause that. Spend the whole class listening to it. Um, but it's it's strange sounding, right? Uh, Berg was the the composer, the writer of the opera. Um, he was part of this modernist movement. His teacher teacher was Arnold Schoenberg, and they were reaching for something new, something that wasn't tonal, something that wasn't recognizable. And in this effort to to create a new modern 20th century sound, one of the things Berg seeks out is this play from the 1830s, from like the Romantic era, um, which is strange, right? It, it's actually, he's finding something older, not old, old, not ancient, but something older in order to to experiment with this this new modernist style. Um, and that seems to be the response to this play. And what I want to talk about when we talk about the play this week is kind of keep that idea in mind. Keep in mind the fact that, um, that there is something different or, or deeply strange about this play that people decades later are going to to kind of discover the modern, right? And so this play, probably more than anything else, is is breaking with the past. And it wasn't, as I said before, it wasn't staged in its day. It wasn't even discovered. It wasn't uh, published, I think, until the 1870s. Um, but that's what I wanted to try and figure out this week. That's what I think we need to think of in terms of the question, the major question, the overarching question about this work this week is what makes it so quote-unquote modern, and is that even an appropriate term to use for this work? So just a little uh, back background on this play and on uh, Buchner himself. Um, so Buchner was a German, German language writer. He was born in 1813 in the Grand Duchy of Hesse, um, he, in 1834, he published what was known as the Hessian Courier with a, uh, with a colleague, which stated basically that he wanted the, the people in the lower ranks, the poor, the peasants, to overthrow the rich, you know, violence to the rich, peace to the poor, is how, um, is how that starts. And that got his co-author thrown in jail, um, he was tortured, and then later he died in prison. Uh, Buchner, who was a little bit brighter, fled to Zurich, and he would spend the rest of his life in Zurich. He more or less gave up direct political writing. He has the opening part of a novel called Lens, which has a bit of a political dimension to it. Um, but more or less, political agitation, he determines, is useless. Um, so he goes there... He um, he writes, he goes to the University of Zurich, he um, gets a, a degree and he becomes a scientist and a, a professor at the University of Zurich. He then gets typhoid and dies about four months after his 23rd birthday. And amongst his remains are his play Danton's Death, which is a full-length play, um, Lentz, the novel, his short play, Leonce and Lena, and then a collection of scenes that doesn't seem to have an end, which is Wojciech. And what the, what the people who found his work 
discovered was that, um, and what's kind of misleading about how this play is published in the PDF form we have, is that the scenes were not arranged. They were just a random pile of papers with different scenes in different places. And so translators and arrangers, uh, the translator for this play that we read is, um, or this translator we read was Carl Ricard Mueller, who came up with an arrangement of scenes he thought made sense. Um, but the arrangement that we're seeing is at the discretion of who's ever publishing, editing, or translating this work. Um, and so that that's really interesting too, because uh, when we've talked about Brecht in the past, when we looked at uh, Brecht through the lens of Peter Brook, and Brecht talks about the, this epic theater where you have um, uh, scenes that are kind of standing on their own, but they're part of this overarching history. Apparently Brecht was uh, very much inspired by by Buchner, by his idea of these kind of isolated scenes that kind of link up together. You know, there's there are plot elements, right? Like Marie has an affair and Wojciech gets jealous and kills her. You know, elements like that. But there's also a lot of scenes which sort of seem to stand alone, stand on their own, and have maybe their own purpose. Um, and this was a big inspiration for for Brecht. The uh, the seeming um, chaos of the play, or what appeared to be to people to be the senselessness of the world in which our main character Wojciech lives, was a huge inspiration in the 1950s and 60s for writers like Samuel Beckett, and in, you know in the 40s for um, Camus, uh, who see in this play a an ancestor to the theater of the absurd movement which um, has anybody read waiting for godot i know we're not covering in this class but has anybody on their own read that or, or read another beckett play <laughs> okay i'll take that as a Go ahead. Yeah, I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Okay. Well, it this is um, the the kind of the absurdity in those plays tend to be around the the um, what we might roughly call like the world is uh, is sort of senseless and unmoving and and hard to make and hard to understand. It's absurd, and a lot of those writers are also looking towards Buchner and towards this play as a source. All right, and so. Even though this play is happening, um, it's not the last play we're doing. Uh, it's by far not the last play we're doing. It's not even the last uh, German play we're doing. It is probably the most modern work we're, we're looking at. Um, and its its place in the chronology is unusual for that reason. So let's jump into it. Um, so we'll start with opening reactions. What did you guys think of, of reading this play? Besides being happy that it's short, it was sad. I guess I thought it was sad anyway. I'm. I think it. I don't know how it couldn't be sad because he kind of kills his wife in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's. That tends to be a downer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other responses? I just I agree with Sonia. It seemed like it, it was a pretty sad play. Like it's un, It's just it's unfortunate. Like mm -hmm. the whole 
premise of it, it seems unfortunate. You know, he's talking about how he has no virtues because he's poor and poor people don't have them. And he, like, goes on to, like you said, kill his wife, you know, and then in some versions drown himself. Like, it's just, it's bad all around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the morality aspect of this play was really weird. Because mm -hmm. it feels like everyone's preaching morality, but no one's actually, like, upholding it. Which I feel like is very different from previous plays that we've read through. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's very different from Nathan the Wise, right? Which is, you know, um, preaching morality and then giving us a model of it, right? This is, yeah, this is this is worlds apart. Uh, but good. Let's let's take a look at that at this this idea of of morality and virtue, um, and why that's how that's contextualized, right? Our, our last work, we were looking at, you know, these these kind of enlightenment ideas of, of morality and, and um, universal access to that, right? And this play seems to definitely <laughs> t take issue with that concept. So let's get into the first scene. So the first scene, or the first scene, according to our, our editor, um, is at the captain's. Uh, scene one at the captain's and that's uh, page 109 in your pagination so what what's the actual plot of this scene pretty basic i mean as i mentioned the captain's like asking him what like what's going on in his life and he's telling him about how he's not virtuous and he's but he's a good man but he's not virtuous and um and he just kind of keeps relating to the fact that the reason he lacks these virtues is because he lacks the money to have them that if he had all the money in the world he would gladly follow a life of virtue but since he doesn't he can't mm -hmm. yeah so we have the, this idea that um Wojciech is not virtuous and there's a reason for that um and then Wojciech's response is that virtue is is kind of a privilege uh, it's, that's our language. It's modern language, but that seems to fit here. But what is the what is the reason why the captain accuses Wojciech of not being virtuous? He has a child out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Him and Marie, they're, they're I don't believe they're married. I don't think it qualifies it, but they definitely didn't have. They definitely had a child out of wedlock. Um, and Wojciech's response to that is that. Uh, it really wouldn't matter if you say amen over a poor worm, <laughs> right? That's what he, he kind of com completely dismisses the, this moral foundation. And as you say, Kimberly, he says that his kind of moral life or access to virtue is predicated upon, um, upon wealth, right? He says, uh, yes, Captain Sir, virtue, I haven't got much of that. You see us common people, we haven't got virtue. That's the way it's got to be. But if I could be a gentleman and I could have a hat and watch and cane and I could talk refined, I want to be virtuous all right. There must be something beautiful in virtue, Captain, sir. But I'm just a poor good-for-nothing. So here we go. We have uh, virtue as this um, virtue as something that is conditioned on your social position. right? And that's kind of the, the first thing we learn about about Wojciech here. So then let's let's build that out. Let's talk about him more broadly. What kind of person is Wojciech? Well, 
Well, he's poor, first of all. I feel <laughs> yes. like that okay. was made very much clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, he kind of doesn't really have a place in society, I think. Like, he does a lot of little odd jobs here and there just to make money. Um, so he doesn't really have a job. And then, obviously, his relationship with Marie isn't great. Well, he thinks it's fine, but she obviously does not. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's just kind of this person that like doesn't have a place in the world, but he needs to make money, so he kind of has to find his own place, but he's not super smart either. So it's just a very interesting mix of character traits. Okay. So he's an uh, army barber, right? We know that from this scene. What else does he do to make money? He cuts wood for the captain. Yep, he does kind of odd jobs for the captain. So... Uh, and he does one other thing we know to make money. He's a medical experiment. <laughs> yep, he he is a living medical experiment, right? The experiment is eating only peas. He has to eat only peas. Okay. Um, great. So we got a, kind of an outline of his character. I do want to push back a little, uh, Rachel, against what you said about him not being very smart. Um. I actually think that he is pretty exceptionally smart in this work. Um, And you could see it with, you know, kind of in in this opening scene, um, you know, what you have with Wojciech and the captain is the captain is kind of spitting platitudes, right? About, you know, you should be virtuous. You should, you should have, you should have been married before you had a baby out of wedlock or, um, you know, then, then it would have been fine. Um, and Wojciech's answer is, is more complicated than that. And it's fairly complicated. And he does seem to exhibit a kind of uh, a little bit more intelligence a, or a lot more intelligence than the people around him. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Do you think, what do you think of Wojciech's intellect and how it plays into this? Do you agree with me? Do you agree with Rachel? What is the, uh, what's the story? I would correct myself then in saying that he's not the same intelligence as the people around him, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, so he's he doesn't have the kind of the time to ponder all the things that these like wealthy people around him are thinking of. Um, so I guess it, it would be like a different kind of intellect then. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He's smart in more of a practical way instead of an intellectual way. I kind of second that. I was thinking that, especially after your explanation, like how he, like his answer to the captain, how he's like, oh, if you said amen over a worm, it wouldn't do anything. Like it seems like he's almost more realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think he's realistic. I He does have these kind of, insights into the human condition that I don't think anybody else has right like at one point he imagines um, he talks about uh, this kind of lovely poetic moment where he talks about man as a uh, as a chasm that you can continually look down right he has on um, on page 129 uh, which is uh, scene 16 when he's talking to the sergeant um, you know he he has this great reflection on what man is that has these kind of echoes from Hamlet in it. Um, He says there, he says here, this is page 129. 
What is man, bones, dust, sand, dung? What is nature, dust, sand, dung? But poor stupid man, stupid man, we must be friends. If only you have no courage, there would be no science. Only nature, no amputation, no articulation. What is this, Voitsex arm, flesh, bones, veins? What is this, dung? Why is it rotted in dung? Must I cut off my arm? No. Man is selfish. He beats, shoots, stabs his own kind. Okay. So there, there's a little bit of um, there's these kind of grand observations about what what people is, what people are, right? And, and kind of maybe a little more poetic or a little more a little more heightened. Um, but I think with his intellect, uh, I actually I'm gonna I'm gonna push back against both. Uh, Chuck and Kimberly also, which is, so, well, you know what? I'll phrase it this way. I'll ask you guys. Why do you think his intellect is practical? Why do you think he's a practical person? I mean, I know he does a lot of things to make money to, to give to the kid, but um, other than that, what makes him practical? I guess the reason I felt like he's being practical was uh, because that he wasn't he was saying to me he was saying that he couldn't like the reason he's not virtuous is a silly one if it's only because he has a child out of wedlock and he says like you know that I guess in a sense and then he even pushes back and like you said about the worm like he's kind of saying like it doesn't matter if he's virtuous because he's poor where I I don't know about at this time but I know for a while like religion or making it to heaven really did kind of rely on what kind of money he had so it, it almost seems like he is aware of that and knows that because he has no money he's not going to make it to heaven anyway yeah i i mean a lot of these um yeah i i would say maybe not exactly a one-to-one that you know a lot of these people aren't catholics right they're not buying indulgences so it isn't exactly you need money for the, you know, you need money to literally enter heaven. Um, I think his observation here is more that, um, that the, the greatness of people that people have, or could potentially have an inherent greatness. But if you have no kind of resources, then, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like if you're being quashed, quashed, squashed the way Wojciech is, um, you know, the, the kind of scolding about virtue really doesn't matter. Um, I, I don't know if it's exactly you're, you're buying your way into heaven necessarily. Um, oh, sorry. I wanted ahead. to wait till you finished, but I, I wanted to say that I kind of, I personally think that Wojtek is, I, I don't know how I feel about his intellect to be completely honest, mm-hmm. but I do I do think that he's emotionally aware mm-hmm. in a sense, but I also think that he might, I think he's emotionally intelligent, but he might not be very self-aware. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually, the reason I stepped in, or I guess clicked on, but um, the reason I clicked on is because I feel like, um, I don't, okay, well, I just lost my train of thought. But, That's okay. Okay, sorry. That's okay. So let, let's actually, let's keep this open then, right? Let's keep kind of uh, attention on the type of intellect Wojciech has. Because uh, I, I think it is, he 
I think he is, in my reading, uh, an intelligent person, a deeply intelligent person who is in a position where that doesn't matter. Um, and so let, let's keep that open. Let's just kind of um, keep them in the back of our heads and let's jump forward. And I want to talk about um, the monkey. And you kind of know this is a closet drama when a monkey comes on stage. That tends to be the big indicator that we're dealing with something that the writer did not intend to be to be staged. Um, so this is page 114. All right, this is, uh, it, the scene starts on page 113, at the bottom of 113. It's scene four and goes into 115. And um, so what's going on here? What is the, let's take a moment to survey this scene again and what's actually happening here. So they go out. What's happening with the monkey? Yeah, well, what's happening in the scene? Okay, um, so basically they go to like this fair. Mm -hmm. Um, It's. And and with the monkey, there's like this whole uh, dialogue about how, you know, monkeys aren't all that different than people, kind of. That's at least what I took away from it. Yeah. Yeah, so they go to the booth, and there's a charlatan there, and he has a, a big, long speech about a monkey. Um, yeah, so he, uh, yeah, you see here, before you a creature as God created it, but is nothing this way, absolutely nothing. Um, but now look at what art can do. It walks upright, wears coats and pants, and even carries a saber. This monkey here is a regular soldier. So what if he isn't much different? So what if he is still on the bottom rung of human of the human ladder? Hey there, take a bow. That's the way. Now you're a baron at least. Give us a kiss. All right. So we have um, we have this monkey who uh, who the charlatan is promising can be you know um, given a place in the world via art, right? And what what seems to be art in in the charlatans? in the charlatan's definition, by the charlatan's definition. Is it the fact that he's wearing a little costume? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a little costume. He can bow like a baron. He can, you know, he can carry a saber. So he's going to dress like a little soldier. Um, he can be decorated like a person, right? He can, he can occupy the, the space of a person. Uh, you know, and so this monkey has a little little place in in society, even if it is on the the bottom rung, right? So, what do you guys make of this scene? Why is this here? I don't know if I'm reading. Oh. I'm not sure. Okay. Oh, okay. You're going <laughs> first, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but it kind of feels like a comparison almost between like uh oh my god what's his name Wojcik and the monkey mm-hmm. 
a little bit. Like, it feels like that's kind of what's being said, just because, like, oh, like, this monkey isn't much different from people. He's kind of, like, at the bottom rung of the human ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It just felt like it was kind of taking a stab at Wojcik a little bit. Okay, taking a stab at him. What did you have, Sonya? Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like the the charlatan he's almost saying like oh this monkey can be trained he can be shaped he can be manipulated like manipulated mm-hmm. and i think in paralleling i don't know if that's a verb but in placing that like parallel to Wojtek, that's almost saying like he can't think for himself almost he's at the bottom rung of the ladder he can only do things for people who are above him mm-hmm. almost that's kind of what i got out of it Good, yeah, yeah. The, the the monkey can only do things for um, he can only do things for people above him in the ladder. Mm-hmm. Did you have something else, Rachel? Um, just the comparison between like all this monkey really has to do is put on a little costume and do what he's told, mm-hmm. like that parallel specifically. I feel like really relates to Oizek. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. How so? We got here that um, the bottom rung of 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 society that there's a similarity between Voidsek and the monkey in that sense, um, you know, and that there's this idea that people in the bottom rung they you know p- need to put on their their costume and serve the <laughs> the higher rungs of the ladder, right? They're not going up the ladder. They're they're let's drop the ladder metaphor they're, they're helping people higher up in society than they are um what can we say is a difference then between the monkey and Voidsek? besides the 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 species difference i mean not that the monkey necessarily has a choice in it but he can take those clothes off and return to his monkey self and Voidsek is kind of stuck in mm. that position of being at that low rung. Okay. Uh, Brianna? Oh, I was going to say a subtle self-awareness. You said self-awareness. Okay. Great. I, I think that's... Thanks in both of those cases. The monkey can... Um, the monkey can go back to being himself, which is a really important thing. Uh, and Brianna also incredibly important uh, self-awareness, right? That's a big difference. Wojtek is, um, and and this is why I I kind of read Wojtek as th- the intelligence in the play. He's the you know brightest character. I don't think anybody comes close to being able to to think at the level that Wojtek can think. Um, but but the monkey is not self-aware. Wojtek is. How does that? How does that self-awareness help or harm Voidsek? I'll throw it to you. Like oh. almost, Go ahead. Go sorry. ahead. Sorry. I feel like he's almost like depressed and suffering because he has this self-awareness. He feels like, oh, I have all this, like, I have so much that I need to do, but it's really difficult for me to accomplish it, and I can't leave this position and it hurts to be in this position. So his self-awareness is kind of hurting him emotionally almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, I agree. Like, at the end of the day, to the monkey, like, 
the monkey isn't aware that this is a job where he's on the bottom, you know, <laughs> rung of the ladder. Sorry mm. to bring back the ladder metaphor. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> but, like, he isn't aware that things could be better, you know? Like, all mm-hmm. he knows is, oh, if I put on this little costume and I dance around a little, like, I get fed. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas uh, Oizek is obviously aware of, like, the finer things in life, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or that he doesn't have access to them. I mean, Wojciech is deeply aware of beauty. That seems to be something that comes up over and over again. He knows that beauty is out there, and he can see it. Uh, he seems to have trouble experiencing it. And our our monkey friend um, probably doesn't really care. <laughs> like Like you said, Rachel, it's probably like, yay, food, and that's it. And so... We're living in a world where the the gift of intellect, right, or, or the gift of being able to experience beauty or, or see things differently or whatever, have thoughts, um, what does that really do for you? It doesn't do very much, right? And if, in fact, it seems like the way I read the scene and read the scene in, in concert with the rest of the play is that this monkey's dullness is, you know, the fact that he's a monkey, uh, advantages him over Voidsec because, you know, he has a place in this society. It's the bottom rung of the ladder. It's, you know, wearing a, a soldier suit and dancing at a carnival. Um, but it's a place in society, right? It's it's a rung. It's a position. Uh, Voidsec, by the end of this play, is completely severed from society. And we don't know what happens to him. Again, this is a fragment. Uh, uh, Buchner never finished it. There's some suggestion that the the third act of this play would have been a trial scene. Um, it, it was based on a real murder. There was a real person named Joseph Wojcik who famously in, um, in the, I think the 1820s, uh, murdered his wife. But you know, whatever. That's that's about as as close as the uh, as the real life story in this play goes. Um, but kind of in every way, Wojcik becomes alienated, more more alienated from the society, from his uh, from the people at his his job. Right? He he can't really connect in any way to um, to the people he works with. Probably the closest is Andre his friend Andre, but he certainly can't connect with the captain at all. Um, and then he, it breaks, he breaks apart from his wife. Uh, he seems to be breaking apart from his, his himself. That's, you know, part of this, this, uh, process of going crazy, right. Is that he begins to see these kind of apocalyptic, uh, views of the world. Um, and yet the society even has a place for, for the monkey, <laughs> you know. Uh, I just have a question. Sure. I was wondering if, you know, uh, the author, Buchner, if he was into, like, communism or Marxist theory at all. I don't know exactly when that was mm-hmm. created. I don't know when the Communist Manifesto was written, but it just sounds very similar to what, like, what I know about communism, like, communist ideals. So I was wondering if you know if Buchner was a communist or anything so he's predating that right so the um the the communist manifesto 
uh, is written a little later. I think the Das Kapital, I want to say, is written the late 1860s. Uh, let me see when the Communist Manifesto is written. It's it's later. Communist Manifesto is is after Buchner's death, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, 1848. So he's he's not a communist in the card-carrying sense, right? Because, you know, you, you can't... But he is a political radical. Um, and he... And, and political radicals of this time, you know, of somebody who's born in the 18-teens are most likely looking towards uh, the French Revolution for that inspiration, um, which I think we talked about a little bit. And Buchner's full-length... Were you going to say something, Sonia? Sorry, you know, I, was, I just wanted to say, I was just wondering, because it very much reminds me of some of the ideals of communism, like the suffering of the working class, mm -hmm. when the rich have easy, they live these beautiful lives where all other, like, working people are suffering. That's just why I asked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that that's here, certainly, right? It's um, He's not a communist in the sense that that he's committed to that because it doesn't exist yet. Um, but he is starting his artistic career a, a political radical. Um, and his full-length play, Danton's Death, Danton, does anybody know who that is, is uh, one of the French revolutionaries. Um, and in in talking about um, the, the French Revolution, he's also, though I will say this, highly critical of it. So his, um, so his, his radicalism ends up by the time he gets to this play. And, you know, I want to say later in life than when you die at 23. I don't know if we can properly call that later in life. Uh, but the, the latter part of his artistic career, anyway, he is um, looking back on kind of the French Revolution and those kind of revolutionary attitudes that he originally participated in as a teenager um, and and being somewhat critical of those being very critical in those um, I actually actually here I have a letter from um, 1835 that he wrote to his parents that might might shed some light on it or on light on um, how he felt about kind of political radicalism uh, and let me do you want me to read that to you or yeah, I'd like to hear it. Sure. It's it's quick. It'll be it's a little off topic, but um you know, we have a whole week, right? So um do, 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 do. let me find it here. So he starts this uh the dramatic poet is in my eyes nothing but a writer of history, except that he stands above the ladder in that he creates history for the second time. He transplants us directly into the life of another time instead of giving us a dry account of it. Instead of characteristics, he gives us characters. Instead of descriptions, he gives us living figures. His greatest task is to come as close to possible... Uh, excuse me, I lost some place. He comes close as possible to history as it actually was. Um, his book may be neither more nor less moral than history itself, but history was not made by the good Lord God to serve as proper reading matter for young ladies, and therefore I ought not to be blamed if my drama happens to be equally unsuited to that purpose. The drama in this case is Danton's death, so a play uh, critical of the French Revolution and of that kind of more radical politics. Um, I can scarcely be expected to make virtuous heroes out of Danton and the bandits of the Revolution. If I was to depict their dissoluteness, then I have to make them dissolute. 
If I was to show them as godless, then I have to let them speak like atheists. If a number of indecent expressions present themselves, then consider the well-known obscenity utilized in the speech of the time, and you will see that which I have let my people say is no more than a weak abstraction of it. I might still, of course, be censored for having chosen such material, but that objection was put down long ago. Um, dot, dot, dot. The poet is no teacher of morals. He invents and creates characters. He brings the past back to life. And from this, people may learn as though from the study of history itself. Um, and so it seems that his, um, his desire is uh, to even contextualize his, the radicalism of his teenage years where he's, um, you know, looking at, uh, at this kind of let's throw over the rich because he's literally in the Hessian courier. The, the thing I told you about at the beginning, I have a copy of that here. I'll read the, the opening to that as well. Um, just to give you an idea, he says, um, freedom for the huts war on the palaces. That that's how, that's how this thing he wrote in, uh, in or, or circulated in 1834 went out. And the letter I, I just read to you was from 1835, a year later. And so it seems like he is starting with this kind of revolutionary, let's pull down the aristocracy, let's pull down the rich. However, I think that the his suspicion ends up being of... Um, of being the people who are going to pull down the rich, are going to pull down the aristocracy. Is the world that they set in motion going to be any better? Um, is it not just going to recreate the, the old problems? And I think that's what you're you're seeing with, with Voidsec more broadly. And I know I'm going on and on here, but you know I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try and wrap up soon. Um, but what you're seeing with Voidsec and what becomes so appealing to people in the 20th century is that uh, when the world itself is senseless and the position of, of the intellect in this senseless world, uh, when the intellect finds no place for itself in this senseless world, then all the revolutionary furor that you can muster is not going to solve that problem. There's still the problem of the individual in a world that he or she can't make sense of. And I think that's, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say, I think it's, I think that's a really profound observation of him to make. Mm -hmm. I just thought that's, that's really wise. I don't know that like hits a different way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that letter really um, brings to light even this play, like the one we just read, Wojciech, although it's obviously he's talking about the other play he wrote. Mm -hmm. but more so in how like he felt or viewed himself similar to a historian. I feel like not a lot of playwrights felt that way. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like they were doing it for different reasons than to him. It seems like he was, you know, it makes sense then that this play is so sad and like he wasn't trying to, he didn't change the story it, from in that letter. It seems like he wouldn't have wanted to change the story of why this man killed his wife. He would have just wanted to bring it to light almost. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. It's almost like, trust the text not the writer because i i mean you know having read voidsek and and now now that you know that voidsek actually ha this is based on a true story a famous case in its day does this seem like a an attempt at historical accuracy <laughs> at just historical depiction no 
it's definitely <laughs> not objective in the least. I definitely yeah. think picking um, certain aspects of history to focus on, I don't think it's objective at all. Yeah, it, it's very much, um, it's a very much a different approach to kind of recreating history, right? Which is the, which is an investment in kind of the, the, the psychological underpinnings of the character or the way um, the way the world sort of shapes or interacts with those psychological aspects of the character, right? It's, it's an, it's a, it's not the objective history play that we would think of if somebody said, Hey, you're going to read an objective history play. I almost think that um, in his letter, he was kind of saying that, well, maybe inadvertently, he kind of, I felt that maybe Bookner felt like he had an obligation to share that part of the story. Like it might not be, he had no way of knowing that the full story, like every single facet of what was going on at the time would be represented in the future. So I feel like maybe he chose to present the story that he was seeing. I think he might've felt obligated to share that. Obligated to, to present the story that he was seeing. Yeah. Okay. Like, um, we present suffering and poverty in a way that people might not remember. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Present the social conditions. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a, um, Marxist thing to do, isn't it? To, you know, not just show the, the facticity, the, the fact after fact after fact, but the social conditions which result in history. Yeah, exactly. To mm -hmm. show that not only were these good things happening, bad things were happening too. Real people were really suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Um, just when you say it like that, like the objectivity of it, it's honestly it's very reminiscent of like Greek historians who were not objective at all, <laughs> and, but they, but they, and but they were kind of claiming that they were trying to show the social conditions that led to these wars and led to these things that happened. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, the, and the, the kind of the Greek historians and the, the Roman historians too are. Um, I'm. I'm you know, listening to a the, the British history podcast, which I would recommend, which goes like British history year after year from I think the year like forty four BC, and a lot of the source at this point is Tacitus, and Tacitus is strictly writing um, uh, propaganda. <laughs> so a lot of what we know from British history is filtered through propaganda. So this is um, so in one sense you could say you know these kind of these stories of history are never objective but i think what what sonia is, is pointing out here is that um what we're getting is a, a kind of psychological and, and natural in a naturalism sense uh, a history of this event this famous murder case and now we're getting the 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 worldly conditions which make someone lower than a monkey right and when somebody's lower than a monkey um, bad things can happen, right? When somebody's that dissociated from their own society, bad things can happen. We have Brianna here is saying that uh, that the, the oh, this is the discussion about the um, the French Revolution, right, Brianna? It reminds you about Wordsworth and and Edmund Burke. Okay, good. Yeah, that was that was definitely like Burke, especially is. 
uh, very, very famous for his, his critique of the French Revolution. Um, and you see a lot of people who initially embraced the French Revolution, like Wordsworth or even Thomas Jefferson, who later in life turn away from it. Good. Um, so let's move on. We have, what, three minutes left, two minutes left? Let me check. Um, so real quick, my sure, sure, sure. question mm -hmm. is very much less intellectual and philosophical sure. than what we just went through. Mm -hmm. um, but the hallucinations that he has, does that have anything to do with the fact that he's eating only peas? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I think it's a factor. Yeah, I think that uh, I yeah. I think the, the fact that he is only eat, allowed to eat peas during the course of this play is probably contributing to his his visions, um, which you get right away, right? In, in Vision 2, um, let's see. I uh, turned away from the, uh, the play in order to look at these other scenes. Um, yeah, in the second vision, he, yeah, sees, or the second scene, rather, his first vision, it's, um, he imagines kind of the world on fire or, or the sky on fire sailing over the world and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, um, that it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a pee brain. Um, that, uh, that probably contributes, but let's in our last, uh, ooh, minute. Okay. Uh, that's not a lot of time, but let's summarize then quickly what is the scientific experiment that Wojciech is being paid for? We've kind of said it already. Just basically. I was going to say, that's because he's eating only peas. He's, he's, yep, that's, that's the test. He has become... A, per, a, a science itself, the embodiment of science, because he eats only peas. Isn't there also an aspect where he like has to hold his urine for <laughs> yeah. a while or something? Yeah, like, I feel like that was part of it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's an un, uh, a hard to understand aspect to the experiment where he has to um, has to either either he has to pee for the scientist or the scientist is upset that he peed on a wall outside it's it's a little unclear but the scientist is basically chastising him for a lack of control but uh yeah so that that's what's going on and we'll we'll jump into that on wednesday um and we'll try to get into beijing opera it, it's the Beijing opera and Wojciech are about as different as two things can be, but uh, this is this is what happens when you get behind. Um, any closing comments before we leave today, or any closing questions? <laughs>